with the uh, with the annual meeting today, with the uh, the potluck after, I didn't want to continue on in the Gospel of Matthew. The next passage will have to do with the the, the last. We've already talked about the last Passover. It'll be talking about the first Lord's Supper, and I want that to be at a time when we can actually celebrate it and we have time. So we're going to do that next week. Today I, I thought I would take uh, maybe half the normal time and talk about what it means to be uh, what it means to be reformed. What does it mean to be reformed? If you're not Roman Catholic and you're Christian, you are a child of the Reformation. I often describe myself as, as being Reformed in theology and Baptist in practice, lowercase r, lowercase b. We're not connected with the Southern Baptist Convention or any other Baptist group. We're not connected with a Reformed denomination. But if you're Protestant, you're a child of the Reformation. So I want to talk about what Reformed theology is and what it means to be Reformed. Uh, theology is simply thinking and reasoning about God. Every human being has thoughts about God. Every human being reasons about God. Every person is a theologian. The question is whether they're good theologians or bad theologians, whether they're faithful or unfaithful. So let's pray and we'll talk about this together. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the truth that you have given us in the gospel. I thank you for the hope that we have in Christ and for the fellowship that we have with one another as believers in Christ, as those who have been rescued from the, the torments and the threat of hell and not just forgiven, but adopted and made your children. We give you thanks for that today. Please bless us as we think about these things uh, in this time. In your name I pray, amen. Uh, what is the ground of human reasoning? What is the, the basis of human reasoning? What, where do we begin? For the majority, it's human tradition. It's reason. It's human religions. It's human philosophies. It's uh, the values and principles of the time. And, and by the way, when somebody is in a state of rebellion against the existed order, they're also being shaped by that order. They're being shaped by what they don't want to be. There are a number of religions that began because somebody was unhappy with somebody else, and the basis of being who they are is that they were offended or unhappy with someone else. The minority think and reason according to the scriptures, according to the 66 books of the Bible, Genesis to Revelation. Uh, I know a man, Dakota does, Adam probably remembers him, who frequently comes to the mission for meals. He has a unique religion. Um, it came to him, Penny knows who I'm talking about, it came to him in a dream. Uh, I think that dream was motivated by chemicals, frankly. The irony is that that personal, private, unique, one-of-a-kind version of Christianity is what he thinks should be true for everybody. And it simply came out of his, uh, frankly, drug-addled imagination. We understand that God can't be discovered. He doesn't exist within the scope of creation. He's not something that we can take apart and put back together again. We can't examine him. We can't discover him. He has to reveal himself. So 
John 3.16. I'm sorry, 2 Timothy 3.16. There's a 3.16 in there somewhere. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Teaching here is not the verb teaching. It is the noun teaching. It means the content of what it is we teach. The source of, uh, or the, the truths that we teach. The, the Bible is, is fully adequate for reproof. That means the identification of error. It's the diagnostic tool. It's like an x-ray. It's like an MRI. The Bible is completely sufficient for correction. That's the antidote for error. What's the treatment for error? What's the treatment for bad theology or sinful practices? The Bible has that. And then the Bible is absolutely adequate for and sufficient for training in righteousness. That is, how do we take the truths of Scripture and then live them out? What does it look like in our lives? Adam just uh, took us during the confession time through 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's what the scripture says. That's the content. What would the reproof be? Well, the reproof would be if somebody says, I need to confess my sin and then I need to do good works. No, that's not what the scripture says. The scripture says if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness on the basis of confession made in faith. What's the correction? The correction is the antidote to error. So for the person who says, I need to confess my sins, but then I need to do the good works, the, 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 the antidote is to say, no, stop thinking that way. It's not that good works are bad. Doing good things is good. It's that they have no basis on your forgiveness in Christ. How do you know when you've done enough? I overheard a conversation one time between one man and another, and the, the, the first man said, I believe that the grace of God comes into play once I have done all that I can do. And I immediately thought, what a waste of time. When have you ever done all? all that you can do never not once there was always more you could give you always had more energy you always had more kindness you always had more diligence you always had more stick with itness that you just didn't give so the grace of god which is unmerited favor comes on the basis of confession in faith, and then the training of righteousness, the application of truth to life. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, there's, there's the, the question, will you confess your sins? Will you agree with God that what you've done is sin and name it according to what he names? And then the promise is, he will forgive your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness, which means the guilty conscience can be told to shut up and the grief and the remorse can be set aside. The memory is always there. But it never has to stop you from following Christ or being faithful. That's what scripture does for us. 
So biblical theology means, in a positive sense, thinking and reasoning according to God's self-revelation. And in a negative sense, it means not simply following our own ideas or opinions or ponderings or philosophies or the, the ideas and opinions and ponderings and philosophies of others. It means we go to the source of truth, which is scripture. This is where it connects with the Reformation, because the Reformation is rooted in the word of God. It's rooted in biblical theology. And we understand from scripture that we are spiritually formed and personally formed as Christians and as the church by the word of God. We are formed by scripture. And we all drift, right? We all lose the plot. We all color outside the lines. We all step outside. We, we just get lazy. We get a little apathetic. We get tired. We get exhausted. We get mistaken on something. And now we who have been formed have become somewhat deformed. And then scripture reforms us. The Protestant Reformation is really the reformation of the church having been deformed. The Roman Catholic Church was the church at the time. The Roman Catholic Church has its roots in the 4th century. It does not go back to Peter, in spite of what they claim. In 325 AD, Constantine, the emperor of Rome, legalized Christianity, and he structured the church in the city of Rome according to the Roman Empire's structure. That then fed out through the rest of the churches in the West. In 590 AD, Gregory I, who was the, the Bishop of Rome, who referred to himself as the Pope of Rome, declared himself to be the leader of every church in the world. Not just the church in Rome, but the church in every city. Over the next 900 years then, a significant amount of drift took place in a variety of, of areas within the Roman Catholic Church. They were set aside in, in favor of human opinion and human philosophies. And as a result, Scripture, in basic terms, Scripture gets demoted to being one of several sources of truth. Within the Roman Catholic Church, uh, a studied Roman Catholic or a, a Roman Catholic priest or theologian would say the Roman Catholic Church has three pillars, the Scriptures, the traditions of the church, and the decisions of the magisterium, which means the pope and the cardinals and the bishops. The pope and the cardinals and the bishops, the magisterium, reserves the right to tell us what the scripture means and what tradition means, which really means they don't have three pillars, they have one pillar, and it's the church. Which is why, for the majority of their history, they told Christians in the church, don't read the Bible. It can't do you any good. In fact, it's positively wrong for you to read the Bible. Don't read it. Just listen to us. And of course, at a time when most people were illiterate, that's all they had. The seeds of the Reformation begin a couple of hundred years beforehand. John Wycliffe in England, who lived between 1320 in 1384, Jan Hus in Bohemia, who lived from 1369 to 1411, they were both Catholic priests. 
They were educated and they, were, they could read. That was not usual for Catholic priests at the time. Both of them independently to some degree, Wycliffe more independently than Hus, came to view the Bible and not the church as the final authority. And they began to teach that. They began to, te- to criticize the unbiblical practices of the Roman Catholic Church. They called for the scriptures to be translated into the languages of the people so that the people could have the word of God and read it for themselves. Both were persecuted for their positions. Jan Hus was uh, burned to death. John Wycliffe died of a stroke. But sometime after he was buried, church leaders dug up his body and burned it and dumped him in a river. We're just going to make it clear, even though you're dead. And the church was able to kind of maintain its own until 1440. In 1440, Johannes Gutenberg invented the movable type printing press. And suddenly, over the next generation or two, Bibles became affordable and available. And it's, it's not accidental that in the early 1500s, the Reformation begins to move. You recognize men like Martin Luther. He was a German Roman Catholic priest who became convinced from Scripture that the Roman Catholic Church was wrong on key issues, not on every issue, but on key issues. John Calvin in France, uh, Ulrich Zwingli in Switzerland. I know that that name just flows trippingly off the tongue, but Zwingli's a fascinating character. Uh, John Knox in Scotland with Presbyterianism, William Tyndale in England, they all lived within the same 50, 60, 70 year period of time. Here's the thing though, if these men had not been the, 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 the high point, the leaders of the Reformation, the Reformation would have happened anyway because it was not driven by men, it was driven by Christians coming to scripture. So Martin Luther didn't stand up and introduce ideas that nobody had ever heard before. Martin Luther became a focusing point for Christians who were reading the scriptures and saying, I'm confused and what they're doing is not right. And Luther was able to gather them. John Knox in Scotland doing the same thing. John Calvin in Switzerland doing the same thing. Once people had the word of God, it was inevitable. And for the first time, people in a thousand years, people relied on scripture, not the church. It no longer became the church says to you, but the word of God says. And increasingly, pastors were able to say, I turn your attention to the book of Romans, the 12th chapter, the second verse. And people could turn in their Bibles to the book of Romans, chapter 12, verse 2. Or whatever passage it happened to be, they could follow along and see this is what he's saying. As that man speaks there, I'm following along. And what he read is what my Bible says. And then if he gave them some bizarre, weird interpretation of it, they could say, I don't see that. And all of a sudden, the authority of the church shifts from a priesthood to the scriptures which is where it belonged in the first place. Luther's intention, by the way, was not to break with the church, but to reform it. 
Remember I talked about this, the gospel and the scriptures form us as Christians and as a church in the first place. Over time, we, we tend to drift. We, come to be, we, we tend to become a little bit deformed. If that deformation is not dealt with, it becomes severe. And the answer is to be reformed according to the scriptures. They, the church tried Luther for heresy. His response was this, unless I am refuted and convicted by the testimonies of the scriptures or by clear arguments from the scriptures, since I believe neither the Pope nor the councils alone, it being obvious that they have often erred and contradicted themselves, I am conquered by the holy scriptures quoted by me and my conscience is bound to the word of God. I cannot and will not recant anything since it is unsafe and dangerous to do anything against the conscience. So the heart of being reformed, what does it mean to be reformed? It means to be centered on and focused on and founded on the word of God. It forms us in the first place. It identifies when we get out of line and it reforms us when we have deformed. Romans 12.2, by the way, says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may approve what the will of God is, that which is good and pleasing and perfect. People have said the Reformation was 500 years ago. It's time to move on. There, there are people within... Protestant denominations, generally progressive Protestant denominations, who say, that time's over, we should just rejoin the Catholic Church. But the, but the Reformation never stops. The heart cry of the Reformation was semper reformanda, always reforming. Because we're always drifting, there's always a need to correct our course. My Subaru has a a lane keeping function. It won't drive for me. If I take my hands off the steering wheel after 30 or 40 seconds, it, it starts beeping at me. But as I'm driving along, if I'm not quite paying attention and I drift toward the line, it'll, it'll nudge me back. If I drift toward the outside line, it'll, it'll nudge me back. What's really exciting, because it's a human invention, is that if there's a line of snow in the road, it'll go, oh, there's the line, and I have to correct it. <laughs> when we drift, we need to be corrected. So the Reformation is truly never over. Now, this is really interesting. Um, three primary church denominations emerged from the Reformation, the Lutheran Church, the Anglican Church, and the Presbyterian Church. All have drifted over the years. The Anglican Church last year uh, the, the Archbishop of Canterbury approved of homosexuality. So the Anglican Church in Africa disfellowshipped the man who is essentially the Pope of the Anglican Church in order to say, no, we won't do that. Missouri and Wisconsin Lutheran synods formed in the 1800s because the existing Lutheran groups began to progressively drift. And the leaders of those groups refused to be corrected. And rather than being taken along, and rather than living at odds, at different periods of time in Missouri and in Wisconsin, Lutheran churches said, let's just break from that. 
and connect over, let, let's go back to what we believe is foundational. The Presbyterian Church began in Scotland with John Knox. It was the, the Church of Scotland. Um, I think it's still the official Church of Scotland. John Knox would be horrified at what the Presbyterian Church USA does. They approve of homosexuality. They have homosexual pastors. They perform homosexual marriages. The Presbyterian Church of America is still conservative. That was the R.C. Sproul Presbyterian Church, but they have to be watching all the time. PCUSA, bad. PCA, okay right now. So being reformed means being formed by the scriptures. It means being constantly in the scriptures so that when it's necessary to have a course correction, we can be reformed. So I study the scriptures. I don't study human tradition, human philosophies. I teach the scriptures alone. I tell you what book and chapter and verse to turn to. So you can see that you're, you can see for yourself what I'm saying. You can test me to be assured that what I'm saying is actually found in Scripture. And if I'm wrong, I am happy to be corrected, but come to me with Scripture. That's what we are all to be bound by. Linda and I know a husband and wife who several years ago experienced a, a, a true crisis in their lives. Uh, we, we believe that their faith is genuine, but they have always been people who are governed by experience and emotion. And in the aftermath of this, this challenging time, their spiritual lives, lives suffered. Uh, Linda had a meeting with, with the woman a few weeks ago, and today they are living depressed, defeated, pointless lives. Because the basis of their lives is not what God has said in his word, it's what they feel. And of course, there's, there's, no, there's no way to, to, to be at peace with that. If you really want to live by your emotions and your experience, you can certainly do that. But before you try that, I want you to do something that's similar. And you don't have to do this, but you can try it if you want to. Reach around, grab the back of your shirt, and lift yourself off of your chair. If you can do that, then you can live by your own emotions. But if you can't do that, you have to have something else as a foundation and something else to live by. So imagine that you're driving on a, on a mountain road in the middle of a moonless, cloudy night. Your headlights are literally the only source of light. And if you turn them off, you can't see your hand in front of your face. What would you trust more, your sense of direction or the lights from the front of your car? Would you trust how your memory recalls how the road twists and turns? Or would, would you trust what you can actually see that's illuminated by another source? Well, Scripture describes this world as being full of darkness. And it says the, the Bible is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. It's a lamp shining in a dark place. Jesus Christ is the light of the world, which coming in the world gives light to every man. If Jesus is the light of the world who gives light to every man, then why aren't all people illuminated? Jesus tells us. He says, the light has come into the world, John three nineteen. but men love the darkness. 
So the majority of the people in the world are driving on that, that dark, cloudy, moonless mountain road, and they either drive with no lights at all, or once, once every five or ten minutes they flash the lights on, and then they say, I can just do the rest by my feelings, and I can do the rest by my intuition, and I've, I know the way, all by myself. Jesus promises, he who follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The key word there is follows. He is the light, but the people who won't follow him continue to live in the darkness, even if they claim to know him. So we are a reformed church. We will continue to be governed by the word of God alone. Our ability to understand it is limited, and so there's, there's a consistent need for course corrections. But I believe that the word will correct us as we are submitted to it. For myself, I continue to, to study the word. I promise to continue to study the scriptures alone and to teach them to you to the best of my ability. And I urge you to compare what I teach to the scriptures. You're my safety net. If I get it wrong and nobody tells me I'm in peril, you're like that rumble strip on the side of the road that even if I've got my lights on and I'm paying attention and I think I'm going okay, but all of a sudden I pick up that, I realize there's a problem. That's what we serve for one another. And for your part, I urge you to to keep your heart and your mind open to the scriptures and to be in the word as much as you possibly can. Live in the light of the scriptures. Keep the pages of your Bible open in the same way you would keep your headlights on so that you can see what's in front of you and where you are. Father, we thank you uh, for your word. We didn't divide out a lot of it this morning. This was more historical. But nevertheless, the truth remains that the scriptures are God-breathed and completely sufficient as a source of truth. We need your spirit to empower us to live according to your word. But the word and your spirit are never in contradiction.